Welcome to On The Fly, the fly fishing podcast for people on the fly, with Ben and Steve from Meander Flyco. We're going to share some anecdotes, chat to other passionate fishers, and share some tips and techniques, because there's always something to learn in this game. Basically, we want to keep you connected to your passion when you can't be out on the water. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or check out our store or our socials at Meander Flyco, where we're passionate about equipping you for adventure. G'day everyone, welcome to On The Fly. We're always really excited to have the opportunity to chat to people about fly fishing. Uh, today is certainly no exception. We're really excited to welcome the current individual world champion from 2019 in Tasmania, Howard Croston, to the show. Howard, welcome. Oh, cheers, bud. Good to see you again, mate. Uh, Howard's, also, Howard's also the international product manager for Hardy's and he spends plenty of time on the water. Um, so he's a really uh, welcome guest to the podcast today and we want to chew his ear off about all things fly fishing. Um, yeah. But Steve, you usually start with a, an opening question, oh, so I'll throw it to you. Yeah, Howard, we love to ask our, our experts, what was, do you remember your first fish on the fly? What got you into this game? Uh, well, I'll be honest, it was a bit of a, it is a bit of a funny sort of story. Um, I used to um, actually do a lot of bait fishing when I was a kid, um, before I learned how to fly fish. And uh, there was there was one particular day when, I was bait fishing. To be honest, I was probably bait fishing with using nefarious means, to be honest. I don't think I was fishing within the rules of where I was. <laughs> um, and there was a really weird thing, which I've never seen since to this day, but there was, a, there was a wasp's nest in a tree over the river. And there was a lot of wasps, for some reason, were falling out of this nest onto the water and the fish were going crazy. And I was mm. bait fishing and uh i just couldn't catch anything and i did have a fly rod and i'd sort of been playing around with it that my dad had got me and uh i charged up to like a holiday home that we used to have and i grabbed the rod and i ran down and uh you know by you know should we say a lot of splashing around and thrashing and eventually managing to get it out there i managed to catch one and uh just sort of from then on sort of just like drifted away from the bait fishing it just became you know, it started being 50-50 between a bait rod and a fly rod. And then the year after, I was just fly fishing every single time I could. Yeah, right. So, and I've never seen it to this day since. I've never seen fish actively feeding on wasps. You know, it's just one of them weird things. You have a wasp pattern? Uh, not quite, no. I'm not bothered <laughs> with that one. <laughs> well, uh, we, we could have got you on to talk about all host of things. Obviously, you uh, fish all around the world as a comp angler, but also... Um, you know, fishing all types of water. And we sort of thought maybe one of the best angles to approach with you was to chat about um, how you approach, you know, water with confidence. You know, um, obviously anglers turn up at a stream, maybe it's a stream they know well, maybe it's a stream that they've never seen before. And um, it's always can be a daunting thing to sort of look at the water in front of you and think, well, right, how am I going to approach this? And uh, we thought it would be a really good uh, thing to chat about with you just to get some of your insights about um, what you can share in, in regards to that. So, I guess the first question is, when you turn up at a stream and you've got that water in front of you, what, what sort of thoughts are going through your mind? What are you looking for? Uh, what are you hoping for in that, that moment? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, as you touched, I mean, I've been really lucky because I have fished all over the world through like work and, and competitions and stuff and, and just pleasure fishing as well. And what, the one thing that I have picked up, it doesn't really matter where I've fished in the world, be it over in your neck of the woods or in the US or across Europe, is fish 
in rivers are, are pretty much fish. They look for the same things no matter where you go. Uh, and, you know, for sure, there's lots of differences in, in all the different fisheries, but fish are typically looking for the same kind of things, um, which are pretty much, you know, food, cover and oxygen, you know, mm. not necessarily in that order. Um, and pretty much when I get to any stretch of water, I'm always looking for the same things, um, which is, you know, the good feeding lies, um, decent cover, um, where they're going to feel uh, relatively secure and obviously dependent on water temperature and stuff like that. Um, that can play into it as well from a, you know, from a survival point of view for the fish, you know, so as long as the, you know, the water's at a good temperature and, you know, they're typically going to be in the, where you would expect them to be. Um, mm. the, the one thing I do tend to do um, is quite often, and I think it's something that sort of served me well over the years in, in comp fishing and in pleasure fishing is I try and look for the places that offer that to fish that maybe not everybody else sort of picks up on mm. because it is really surprising where they'll sit. You know, what well, when we look at a bit of river and you think sort of think, oh well, that's the perfect place just there, that's gonna be where they are, you know. There can be lots of other places that are perfect for the fish that we might just glance at them and think, ah, oh, you know, that's not that's not great, you know. Mm. So I tend to find a lot of fish on, you know, like really shallow edges or in, you know, little gaps between rocks and the bank where there's good cover and they can get a feed and feel safe, which you know, people might walk past, you know. So. And I guess that's the advantage, isn't it? If you're hitting parts of the river that are not the obvious lies for fish, there's a good chance those fish haven't seen as many anglers and you're probably going to pick up a few more fish as you go along the way. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, one, one thing that is really relevant as well, which I've sort of always sort of stuck to as well, is um, I actually did it when, because you controlled for me in Taz, and yeah. as you remember. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get to Tasmania if we, if we can a little bit later in the podcast, just to reminisce a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, but one, one of the things I have always done is um, whenever I'm fishing a bit of water, if it's a new bit of water, um, is that I, I try and and work out on the, you know, in that given session or length of time, whatever I'm doing, where the sort of fish are sitting. Mm. So, you know, I'll hit the sort of shallow edges maybe first. And if I fished quite a bit of shallow edge water and it's not giving me a chance or not giving me a fish, I start to sort of shift my focus a little bit to maybe deeper pockets or slower pockets or whatever it happens to be. And mm. then when I start to sort of get a reaction and I start to pick fish up, I sort of shift me, me focus and my work rate to that kind of water, you know, mm. yeah. So rather than like sort of fishing everywhere, if you know what I mean. Which I suppose, especially in competitions when you've only got so many hours, it's a matter of, you know, dialing in exactly where those fish are and then, and then hitting them as many as you can. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I had, I did have the pleasure of controlling you on me end up beat four beautiful bit of water just underneath the Huntsman Dam there, and it was, it was interesting to watch the way you you walked that beat, which is quite a long beat, quite a steep beat, and we were sort of scrambling along the edges there, and as you were going along, you were you were picking out those bits of water that you were thinking were going to be the things, but you started sort of from the bottom of your beat there, and quick you started hitting fish pretty early, but how long are you going to sort of give it? until you decide, right, they're not here, I've got to change tack? Uh, well, actually, I can remember when I, when I fished that bit of water, I, I hit three bankside pockets, which to me looked prime, mm. where I would, I would have, you know, I would have laid money on the bean of fish. 
and I never got a reaction out of, out of those three bits of bankside pocket. Mm. And that's when I switched out to the deeper water. So it, I tend not to burn loads of time. Yeah. You know, um, I hit three, I hit three pockets just to see. And then, I, then I switched out into the deeper stuff in the middle. And I think I got my first fish just out in deeper water in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Um, mm. But I tend not to burn loads and loads of time, to be honest. But that changes, you know, as, as you sort of go through the session and you fish and temperature changes and all that kind of stuff, you've got to you've got to throw a few casts in every so often just to make sure make sure mm. nothing's changed, you know. And and so you're continually sort of looking at the river, looking at the. I think during that beat on the meander, the water colour began to change as the as the um as the session went on. And and so how how did you respond in that situation when? It sort of shut down a little bit. What was your your plan there? Yeah, as soon as that water, as soon as that water coloured up, I changed out to much um, darker, bolder profile flies. I think I went to, um, I switched out to basically two black nymphs. I think I put on um, just because of the water colour change, and I actually dropped the distance down to the minimum permissible fifty centimetres. Mm. Um, and then the only the only other thing that I did was um, in the good water instead of sort of fishing it out in three or four drifts and moving i basically doubled my work rate through every piece of water so you might remember but right at the end i didn't move very far in the last 20 minutes mm. and i just i just kept pounding you know two or three runs right towards the top of the beat because um that kind of water it was it was quite deep and turbulent and that bit of color in it you know there's a much bigger chance that you're going to miss them mm. so I just went to a more sort of thorough searching. Sort and of I guess by that, time, by that time, you, you kind of had a, a dial on where the fish were sitting and you sort of was just a matter of getting those drifts consistently in their face and knowing that, you know, giving it a good chance. Yeah, just just trying to eke a few more out before that <laughs> timer went off and that was it all over, you know, just... Uh... Yeah, how, how would you... You mentioned a couple of times there about um, being smart with your time on the water and, and having some strategies to reduce wasting time. Um, obviously you've talked about picking out the spots that you want to target. What are some other tips about saving time on, on the water in a comp scene or, or even just for pleasure fishing when, um, you know, to, to avoid, you know, or making the most of your time on the water. Got any tips for us about, about that minimizing? Yeah, loss definitely. Of I mean, uh, I've got, a, I mean, uh, my girlfriend definitely thinks I'm a bit of a weirdo because I mean, last night in the, I was down in the garage last night for about four hours. Um, messing about with me, me rigging again. I tend to, um, I tend to try and make everything as efficient as I can these days, um, just with the way I rig all my gear up. Um, and I've got sort of like certain things that I'll do now when I'm fishing comps, which I never used to. And you know, all my flies that I'm going to use in that session come out into a little matchbox that sits on the top of my pack. And I've got a special way of rigging my tippet holders. Uh, my net rigging is pretty much foolproof these days, so it comes on and goes off instantly. I don't have to mess about trying to reattach it because over a, over a three-hour session, you know, all of those sort of wasted seconds doing, you know, jobs that we've all got to do when we're fishing, add yeah. into minutes, and before you realise, it's added into twenty minutes or thirty minutes, mm. and you can catch a lot of fish in twenty or thirty minutes. Mm. So. Over the years, I've sort of tried to to whittle down and refine everything as much as I can to the 
you know, to get them as slick as I possibly can. And, you know, I'll never get there. It's impossible. You know, we're always, I'm always tinkering with gear, trying to make it perfect, but it's, uh, it's definitely getting there. I understand exactly what you're talking about, Howard. I did my first comp down on the tube on the weekend and um, I probably wasted 20 minutes a session. Just, you know, my, my leader had you know, tangled around my guides or, you know, things that yeah. on a normal day's fishing don't seem to matter, but when you're in a comp and then the mind games start to play out, you're like, oh, here we go. <laughs> oh, yeah, they all, it always happens in a comp. But it's a good thing because one, one thing I have done over the years as well is if if something goes wrong, when I'm practicing or when I'm in a comp, even if it's something, you know, what seems quite minor, you know, I'll, I'll try and address that and fix mm. it so it can't happen. Mm. Um, you know, I'll give you one example. I used to always use one of the big retractors for my landing net, the big, um, you know, like the big gatekeeper type things. Yep. It let me down once in about four years where it jammed. Mm. Um, so I, I just scrapped it and I've mm. gone to um, just high-powered magnets now and bungee cord yeah because you know it can't break so yeah and if it's one fish we're talking the difference between finishing first finishing 10th then that could be all the difference it's that's it it's such fine margins now everybody's got so good over the years and mm. you know we're all just scratching out for an odd extra fish here and there so it's become it's definitely become more important i think mm. hey how one of the things that i'm really sort of trying to dial in as i, I get further and further into this game is is selecting my uh, excuse me, <clears throat> selecting my uh, nymphs and the bead weights in different types of water um, to know that I, I mean, for me, it's about trying to fish the water confidently. So knowing that I'm getting those fit, those nymphs down to where the fish are going to see them. How do you go about uh, selecting your nymphs in terms of weight and feeling confident that you've got the right way to drift um, for the water in front of you? Where do you start with that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'll be honest, one of the, one of the first things I, I start off with is just the water temperature. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you've got water temperatures in that sort of optimum band where the, the fish are willing to, willing to feed and they're active, you have actually got a bit more latitude in your bead weight. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if those so, fish are willing, willing so to move, eventually fish lighter, you know. And so in terms of temperatures, optimum temperature, are you sort of talking 13 up to sort of 17 degree water? Is that sort of the optimum or is it wider than I always that? Go, I always go a Fahrenheit, but anything over sort of 50, 52, 53 is getting into the, getting into the good temperature band. Yeah. Um, all the way up to when it's getting up into the, uh, the mid 60s, things start to shut down a little bit. And when it gets higher, it, you know, they start to really think about surviving rather than eating. Yeah. You know, so... So you've got you've got good water in front of you, and then how do you go about sort of starting your bead selection there when you've got the right temperature and the right water in front of you? Well, obviously, because you're in a you know when you're fishing a river, you're in quite a dynamic scenario, right? So everything's mm -hmm. a little bit different. None of it's uniform. So all I'll do a lot of my confidence flies now are just really really simple patterns. Um, there's not a lot to them, but obviously I carry them in a lot of different bead weights. So if I've if I've picked like two or three patterns out that I think I'm going to fish with in that session, I'll mm. just I'll load up my matchbox with probably four bead weights. Then I can I can rotate the flies out as I'm as I'm fishing through different water. Uh, and there there's some shortcuts to doing that as well because you know you can you can fire a lighter bead into the water heavier with a sort of tuck like a tuck cast. Mm. to gain depth with it rather than substituting for a heavier bead if you're only fishing one small pocket and that's that's a, a time saving method 
you know yeah same thing with fishing a heavier bead through skinnier water you can change your rod angle or your your, uh, your tippet angle to the fly and sort of carry it through a little bit by mm. by fishing through flatter you know not letting that bead drop as quick and actually leading it a little bit more so you you can sort of cut corners with it mm. um but i'll pretty much look at the water and i'll i'll make sure that in me in my little matchbox on my chest pack i've got a, at least you know three or four flies in the that will get in the deepest water in that bait uh and the same for the shallowest water you know so and all of the increments in between and i'll just find a good happy medium as i'm fishing and will you generally try to uh, fish from shallow to deep because you want the, the fish, you don't want to go below the, the fish earlier, or you? Well, it sort of depends on, on water temperature, really, because, so what you can do, you know, I'll give you an example. So if, if that water temperature is low, you know, and I'm throwing into a relatively deep pocket with a three millimetre bead, mm. you know, there's a good chance that I'm going to skate over the top of a torpid fish that's not willing to move through the water column to eat it. If I drop down to a 3.5 or a, or a 3.9 or a 3.9 with lead, I get that fly down to him then and he, and he might well be willing to eat it when it bumps him in the face. Mm. That same fish in that same pocket in optimum water temperature could well be willing to come right up in the water column and, and nail a three millimeter bead. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't miss him. I wouldn't leave him behind. Mm. So what I will tend to do sometimes is if, if there is a pocket and I'm sure there's a fish in there and I fish through it and I've not touched bottom and I haven't had a take, I'll just drop a bead weight or I'll drive the fly in to mm. make sure I'm not leaving it behind. You know? Yeah, great. Um, so that that tends to be my my approach, but there's there's no hard and fast rule. That's a little bit of the problem because you know sometimes you just don't want to eat it. You know, mm. yeah. Or sometimes it's just not one there. So sometimes you've just got to you've just got to keep moving. Mm. Yeah. Hey, Howard, we um, we put a bit of a call out on our Instagram last night, letting people know we were going to be talking to you today and if they had any questions. And we've got one here from Ollie from New Zealand who, who wanted to know your thoughts on automatic versus normal reels. All right. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I'll be honest. Um, I do use automatics, but I only use them when it's typically speed fishing. So if it's, mm. if it's big numbers, um, I will use an automatic because... With a manual reel, you have a tendency, especially if you've, if you've got to bring fish back quite a distance in a comp. We all get a bit sloppy and, you know, you net the fish and you end up running back without winding the line in, which is just a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> done it plenty of times. Yeah. Uh, but So with an automatic, you can just zing it up and you can run back in. Mm. The downside to automatics is as soon as you start hitting bigger fish or trophy size fish or whatever they are a bit of a nightmare mm. i hate playing big fish on automatic so i'll be honest when i when i fished the worlds in new zealand back in 2008 when i was young um i used manual reels because of the size of the fish mm. um you know and that just gives you the ability to get it on the reel i imagine so you can utilize yeah, yeah you can get it on the reel they're easy to fight off an off a manual reel um and i'll be honest you know i've in the past i have had some durability and consistency problems with automatic reels with them you know mm. things happening to them and when i'm fishing with them but when it's a lot of small fish they are an advantage mm -hmm. um, 
bigger fish. I just use manuals. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for that. Uh, we also had another question that came in um, just about uh, microliters. If you can just give us a rundown on, you know, what constitute a microliter and I guess what are the advantages and the disadvantages of microliters and when might you fish them or choose not to fish them? Yeah, so it's quite easy to think think about leaders on a on a sliding scale. So as you go thinner, you know they improve a lot of the aspects that matter to the fish. Mm. So you get better drift, you get sort of better contact to your fly, you get better control, you get all these kind of things. But they become increasingly harder for the angler to use. Mm. So micro leaders are you know. Are difficult to control sometimes they're not as accurate um, and they're just harder to master um, you know as you go the other way and you go up to you know thicker and thicker leaders they become easier for the angler but they've got more disadvantages from a fishing perspective mm. so i've been i've been getting steadily thinner with leaders mm. as you know as, as competition fishing's advancing and you know, I, I'm typically now the lightest leader I'm I'm going to throw is about uh, a 0 0.14 uh, level, which is about four pound breaking strain. Which and is that's, thin. That's know. very thin. And so obviously the yeah. advantage there is, is contact and drag free drifts, but casting that for especially someone who's just starting the game, probably you wouldn't go straight to a 0.14. Mike. You wouldn't you wouldn't go straight to a 0.14. I know a lot of good anglers who can't fish 0.14 very well. Mm. Um, because you're merging for error and you've, uh, I'll be honest, you've got to be, you've got to be sharp and you've got to be fishing a lot to use them well, because it literally takes nothing to break them. If you mm. get a little bit over, you know, a little bit over, you know, exuberant with your striking or, you know, if you don't run good fly weights and you come into contact with the bottom a lot, you, you know, you're going to cause problems. But on the flip side, you know, those micro leaders, they're effectively nothing more than tippet material diameter in a lot of cases. So it makes setting up your terminal gear at the end, so your, your tippet section, actually a lot less important because you can set it relatively short and you can let that micro leader go down through the water column because you're not really getting any drag off it. Yeah. So, you know. So effectively it gives you a much longer fishable rig. Yeah, you don't have to, because I, I can remember years ago that like some of the top boys, um, when they were, because a lot of us used to fish tapered leaders, right? mm. so we'd all be fishing, you know, French nymph, you know, whatever you want to call it, with with a tapered uh, with a tapered leader. And the really good guys were always re-rigging um, like the terminal end, you know, as it got in shallow water, they'd take it right down so that you're getting good indication so you're short to your indicator and then when they got in deeper water they'd lengthen it right out but that's a lot of re-rigging time mm. so now with like a like a thin level micro leader you can set your depths fairly standard you know and you can go from shallow to deep without having to bring it all in and retire mm. so that's a good mm. advantage that's fantastic and i noticed you know using the the sort of uh, indicator wax where you, where you can sort of put it on, put it off, gives you that added advantage of being able to, you know, change the, the location of your indicator as you fish through the day without having to re-rig. Yeah, there's, there's, loads of, there's, there's loads of stuff out on the market now, be it acrylic paint pens, wax, uh, coloured greases, all that kind of stuff. It's all good. 
you know, mm. it depends which comp you're in. Occasionally, you know, I've been at competitions where it's been brought up in captains' meetings and we've, we've, it's been banned for the event. Other ones, you bring it up and they say, no, it's great, knock yourself out. So mm. provided it's in the rules, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant piece of kit to give you that sort of versatility, you know. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess for anyone that's listening and thinking they want to get into the, the nymphing game and starting with some of these sort of leaders, your, your recommendation would still be start with something tapered to sort of give you the uh, edge when it comes to casting and getting your flies in the right zone and then start to work towards a micro leader? Yeah, I mean, I, I still carry everything from a from a, a tapered setup right the way through to, you know, 0.14 level. And I, I have all those variations in the back of my pack in like a little and like a little leader stack and mm. I'll, I'll typically fish as heavy as i think i can get away with yeah you know but when you're starting off you've got to you really have got to start with something manageable mm. uh, and the right kind of rod as well is a big is a big player now you know a lot of these a lot of the rods that we're designing now are much more specific when it comes to nymphing with very very light leaders and that makes it way easier to yep. to get to yeah, oh, fantastic. Well, look, um, we we wanted to just sort of, I guess, reminisce a little bit about your time in Tassie. Um, and so um, if you cast your mind back to sort of 2019, what were your expectations coming into the World Championships there over in Tassie? Uh, you know, I'll be honest, I was in the run-up to it, I didn't have as much time to think about everything because I was the sort of manager and the captain for the first time. So I was just... I was just running around like a maniac and I probably did less personal preparation than I've ever done for a world. Yeah. And that was the, you know, that was the same in the actual run up to the event as well. I was too busy sort of running around trying to sort everything else out and logistics and practice and all this kind of stuff. Um, but obviously I'm good friends with uh, Chris Pisano and, yeah. you know, I've known Chris for a, for a good number of years and Staggy and, and a lot of those guys and really great guys. And, They'd sort of, you know, always said, if you ever get over, you're in for a treat with the fishing, mm. you know. So I, I knew it was going to be a good championships from a fishing perspective. I mean, I didn't think we'd be fishing in the middle of winter like we ended up. Doing, no. You know, but... My understanding is of all the places the World Championships been held, that's the first time that people have been actually fishing in snow. <laughs> yeah, well, like... probably. Yeah, it's certainly the first one I've ever done in the snow, you know, but... It was it was still phenomenal. I mean, it was fantastic fishing. So, so did you get much time before the competition to actually sort of practice fish and dial things in, or was it pretty much just? <laughs> no, you know, we got five. We did we did five or six days of practice, and we, you know, I made sure the team fished lakes at the same elevation as the comp lakes. We didn't fish mm. lower down. Um, we didn't fish four springs and places like that, which I think were at lower elevation. Um, mm. A lot of the teams did. We stayed up in the Central Highlands and and fished up there, and you know, and yeah, we got a reasonable handle on it um, on the lakes. You know, we, I think we sort of worked out it wasn't going to be huge numbers of fish um, because mainly because of the conditions. Mm. And we had some really good local guides as well. Who, you know, I'll be honest. You know, my success as well in big part was was due to some of those guys who, you know sort of put us on the right path and then it was just a case of going out and, and sort of doing it and you know a few good decisions here and there and um yeah so it was uh yeah we got a good we got we got some good fishing in the run-up to it 
Yeah. Mm. And I guess we're talking about approaching water with confidence. That's probably one of the most important things is getting some local knowledge, finding out exactly, you know, what, what that, that sort of water is about and, and what you might expect is probably the first leg up on any water. Yeah, just setting the expectation, you know. So, you know, it makes a big difference. If you know you're only looking for, I don't know, let's say five or ten fish versus 30 or 40, it changes, you know, it changes a lot of your your mindset to how you're going to fish it. So mm. just having that bit of practice and that little bit of sort of like of a heads up, you know, um, given the bad conditions, we knew the numbers were probably going to be a bit lower than everybody was expecting. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it was that was definitely a you know, definitely an advantage, definitely a help. Yeah. Hey, how would we? Um, oh, for our listeners, they they can't see, but we're talking to you in your fly tying room, and I can see a wall of sort of threads behind you. Um, yeah. Over here in Australia, we're we're just coming to the end of our uh, river season. And um, Ben and I, in particular, are stocking up, ready for a, a cold winter of fly tying. Um, what's what's happening over there, your side of the world? What what are you getting into right now? So we are now in like the height of our sort of spring season. Yeah. And um, the weather's weird. I'll be honest. Um, we'll Always weird over there, isn't it? <laughs> unseasonable cold weather and stormy stuff and. Then it's hot one day and then it's like it's been hailstorming again today and we've had some of the latest snowfall we've ever had, I think. Mm, COVID. We'll blame COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's all COVID's fault, basically. Um, but yeah, so we've, competition-wise, um, our sort of selection method for the world squads is just about to kick off again in two weeks. So yep. I've got a like a lake event coming up and then a river event for the two days after. That's like the first round and then We'll have a couple more rounds after that to pick the team for whenever. I, can't, I don't even know when it'll be now because, you know, mm. we don't know if it's going to happen. Or mm. It's looking more like it will, but well, that's going to affect everything. Yeah. 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 And so the World Championships this year, Finland, is that right? And uh, I think it's scheduled for August if all goes according to plan. But um... <coughs> Yeah, it's August. Uh, I mean, as it stands at the minute, I think there's something like 11 teams. And yep. I think they need a few more to make it happen. And I'm still waiting for, you know, approval from our federation to put the team in and mm. because of insurance and there's all sorts going on. So, you know, we'll just wait and see whether it happens. Yeah, well, I guess the, the sort of positive is you can say that you've been world champion for a couple of years now, which is which is a bonus. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite weird because I, I was, uh, I, was I joked after, I mean, it, you know, it's taken me a good few years to actually win the thing. I've been close a few times. Yeah. I've been fourth and tenth and all sorts. But when I actually won, I, I said to the guys, it's uh, it's typical. I managed to win it. And because of the timing, I'll be the shortest world champion in history. Because <laughs> like December. And then the competition was supposed to be like the following August. Yeah. You know, it turned out that, you know, Thanks to a global pandemic, I've ended up being the longest. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so that's of course small mercies, but yeah. Well, look, we really appreciate you uh, dropping by to, to chat tonight, Howard. And I guess, like I said, there's so many things we could chat about. And I don't know if, if uh, sometime down the track we'd be able to jump on for another pod. But um, before we go, there's just one thing that I wanted to ask: if if you could um, pick one dry, one nymph, one streamer. Is that too difficult a question to answer or where would you go? 
No, no. Um, for the river. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for the river, I would have to. I would probably have to say it would be just some form of Kuldi Canard dry, either most probably a sedge type pattern. Yep. Um, we've got rakes and rakes of good fly patterns, um, but some kind of Kuldi Canard sedge pattern, mainly because um, it can be something and nothing. It can be everything to a fish, um, mm. and, they, and they collapse pretty well when something chomps it. Um, so they, they tend to convert fish very well when you get fish on them. So probably mm. just a simple CDC sedge pattern. Probably not even with a hackle in it, just the wound body and a wing, you know? Yep. Um, and then I'll do the streamer thing next, but probably on a streamer. It's just, it's pretty pretty boring, but just like a black taddy, probably of some description. Mm. Uh, probably tied more Italian style, probably the way I would describe it, which is the wing coming out um, from up at the front rather than a tail. Mm -hmm. um, tied under the hook shank. Um, I tend to like that fly in a lot of a lot of different colour variations, but black tends to be the most productive. Then you can use that pretty much anywhere. Um, and then on the nymph front, that one's a bit more difficult. Um, I would probably say silver beaded quill. So yeah. just a quill body, a silver bead. And I, I've got one I quite like that's got a like an orange um, sort of hollow, well, it's not really holographic. It's like an orange mylar neck right behind the silver bead. Yep. And that's worked pretty much everywhere for me on trout, grailing, you name it. Um, you know, but yeah, probably those three. Think, well, Tricky one, though. Well, like we said, we're about to enter our tying season, so we'll, we'll make those the first three we, we stick in the vice. <laughs> So, yeah, give it a go. Never know. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, Howard, we do want to say a huge thanks for dropping by. And, um, you know, we really appreciate the time that you've taken a chat. But not just to us. We know that you, you give a lot of your time back to the fishing community and want to share your knowledge. And we always say that knowledge isn't knowledge until it's shared. So we really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to share what you've learned over your years of, of fishing with us here on, on the fly. So, um, yeah, good on you, mate. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Eh? No worries. Thanks, Howard. And all, all the right. best when the worlds do come around if you get there, mate. Yeah, cheers, mate. Well, we'll give it a go. You never know. Wait and see what happens. Good stuff. Thanks, buddy. All right. Cheers, yeah. guys. I'll speak to you again. Thanks for listening in to On The Fly with Meander Flyco. Don't forget to subscribe or check out our socials or online store at Meander Flyco. Until next time, tight lines. Well, Ben was pretty nervous introducing the world champ. Let's have a listen to how he went. Goes along, but usually a bit of fun. Yeah, so. no, I'll be cool. Be good. Cool. You well, doing it or I'll do you go for it. <laughs> well, welcome to On The Fly. We're always excited about the opportunity to chat to passionate fishers about uh, everything fly fishing. But I guess today we're particularly excited as we welcome the current individual world champion, um, Howard Croston. He's also a global uh, brand manager for Howard. Uh, for, sorry, I'll start it again. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> he's his own brand ambassador. Yeah, yeah it's true. He represents Howard very well. He does.
Well, yeah, they uh, say product manager as well because the brand management's just changed. So okay, product manager. Yeah, no worries. Mm -hmm. Well, g'day everyone. Welcome to On the Fly. No doubt. Um, oh my goodness, this is not how it usually goes. <laughs> I've got stag. It's the pressure, fever. man. It's the pressure. It's That's exactly what it is. Out, I've got stag fever. <laughs> this is good. We'll give ourselves some bloopers. <laughs> La 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 la